Welcome to Nighttime. I'm Dave Wager, your host, and for the next half hour, hopefully we can talk serious things in a way where we don't argue. Some of the nighttime idea is that we can put thoughts into our minds about what God says and not have a forum where we're arguing with somebody about something. There's too much arguing going on in the world today. We need to have just time to think and sort, and hopefully nighttime is that for you. I'm coming to you from the studios here at Silver Birch Ranch on the campus of the Nicolay Bible Institute. I hope you'll check those two ministries out as they support this work. If you really enjoy nighttime, I invite you to support this work as well. You can do that by going online to silverbirchranch.org, and there's ways to do that. Tonight I was thinking about 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So I thought, why not read 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and just talk about it? There's nothing more powerful than God's Word. No matter what I say in life, it's never going to match what God has said. And I spend my entire life trying to figure out how to tell you what God has actually said when I guess you could go read it yourself. So... I'm kind of a middleman that's not needed, but I am wanted, and if you've listened to Nighttime, you know how important that is. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, to our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with those in every place upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So many times he starts the chapter or book with the idea of grace and peace. The Apostle Paul was somebody who understood both. But understanding grace, us living in a way that we have more than we ever deserve. We should constantly be rejoicing in the fact that we could be God's children. That is, unless you're not one of his children. But if you are, you should be rejoicing in the fact that you can have a Heavenly Father you can go to, that there is a future that's secure. That it's not secure because of your ability, but because of God's. Paul wants us to remember the grace. And as we remember the grace of God, we live our life in peace, knowing that one day, God is the one who has secured our future. In the fourth verse, it goes on to say, I give thanks to my God always for you. Who do you give thanks always for? It's a good habit to be in. There are people in your life that you should just be thankful for. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Once again, he's talking about grace. Remember, mercy is not getting what you deserve, but grace is getting far more than you would ever deserve. And he's writing to the people of Corinth. Thankful. Thankful for many of them because of the grace that God was given 
to them in Christ Jesus. Fifth verse, that in every way you are enriched in him, in speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not lacking any gift. You, as a body of Christ, are not lacking any gift. God is the one who equips the local church. He equips the body of Christ to do what it should do. In order for my body to be functional, it needs knees and hips and toes and fingers and elbows and shoulders and spinal cord and all that kind of stuff. But I didn't plan any of that. God did. Just like the local church, there's all kinds of different people in it. The whole theme of this first chapter to me really is the idea of unity that comes from listening to the brain. How each of us can be people who dedicate ourselves to doing what God says. And if I dedicate myself to doing what God says I should do, then I'm unified with the rest of the body. Think about somebody running a track meet or skating a routine for some kind of ice skating competition or for ice hockey or something of that nature. Think of how the body all works together. If somebody's playing hockey, nobody comments on how wonderful the ankle's working next to the ice. The whole body is one figure, and it's all doing one thing. And the brain is sending these signals to each part of the body. Now, when one part of the body gets hurt, the whole body does suffer. As I'm recording this, I have scheduled a hip replacement. When I was young, if you know my story, I was somebody who had a couple operations on one of my hips, and now that I'm in my later 60s, that hip needs to be replaced. I'm very thankful that I live in a country in a time where they can do that. But that hip is affecting everything else about my life. It affects my sleep. It affects my waking hours. It affects my ability to exercise. It affects my thinking process when it's in pain. It affects my reading. It affects everything. You see, when there's a part of the body that is screaming for attention because of the pain that it's sending you, it's really hard for that body to get anything done. If I were Satan, I think I would work that way in the church. I would go after individual parts. I know that if you're limping, you're not going to be very good in a race. I know that if your ankle is screaming at you with the pain that you're in, the only focus you're going to have is the pain in your ankle. If I'm Satan, that's how I'm working. The Apostle Paul paints a picture here of unity, the idea of being a part of the body of Christ, the idea about having all the gifts that are necessary for God to use within a local body. I think sometimes we need to understand this analogy far better because we think that our part of the body isn't all that important or we think that somebody else's part is more important or we're jealous about somebody else and what they do. A knee and an elbow are going to have totally different perspectives. It's not my job to give them the same perspective. 
It's my job to celebrate the fact that they can both be healthy and do what they need to do. He said in verse 7, You're not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who is faithful, by whom you were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. In verse 10, the Apostle Paul starts to talk about these divisions in the church that really just shouldn't be. He says, I appeal to you. I beg. I appeal. I want you to think about this in a very concrete way. In the old King James, it was, I beseech you. It means, I invite, I invoke. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. That's a pretty interesting statement. Now, that could mean exactly what I was talking about, that every body part needs to be totally submissive to the brain. And if the nerve system, as it goes through my body, is telling my ankle and my wrist and my mouth right now, my tongue, to move certain ways, all my body has to do is listen to the brain. And if all the parts are listening to the brain, I'm okay. Things will come out just fine and everything will be unified. The problem with this sometimes is that people begin to get political in what they do. They actually start to think that everybody's got to think the same, that the perspective of the elbow, the perspective of the ankle, the perspective of the earlobe all has to be the same. No, all of those need to be subject to the brain. But their perspectives can be different. You see, we have different perspectives, we have different gifts, and it's to, to the building up of the body. If we're going to be unified, then my job is to get into the scriptures, be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, and listen to God. And in this simple, simple way, if I'm listening to God and you're listening to God, then we're unified in what we're doing. We can celebrate each other's lives. We can look forward to what God is going to do with each of us. We can support each other. See, there's no way God's not going to take care of me if you're successful. There's no way that if I'm successful, he's not going to take care of you. It's kind of like if I had a favorite part of my body, like my finger or something. Would I really have a favorite part of my body? I don't think so. And if I did, would I treat it differently than all the rest of you know, it, if I really babied my hand and made it so that it didn't have to work hard or sweat or get tired, then really that neglect of my hand will cause it to be destroyed one day. Unity is not about being a politician. It's not about going out there trying to get people to agree with you. I've heard some groups at times say that the only way God speaks is through unanimity. I understand what they're saying. If the Spirit is saying something, the Spirit is saying something, and he's not saying several things, so I get it. But the goal there is not to be political and try and get people to see what I'm saying and align their thoughts with me so that we all agree. 
I'm not sure that we all hear the Spirit of God the way we should. I'm not sure we're all seeking God's way. This is why I have trouble in a church that's run by votes and a democratic process. Because you're assuming that everybody in the church is going to be walking with God in a way where you're unified in how you think. But that's really not true. I guess you're hoping that a majority of people in the church are going to vote a certain way so that they represent what God wants. And that may be true or may not be true. Whenever we open the door to a democratic process, I think we could be in trouble. Whenever we open the door for politicians to get in and start talking to people about what they should do with their lives, and then we begin to think that it's God's will because a majority of the people or all the people believe the same. We've gotten trouble many times that way if you're a cult or in politics or countries. Some people just choose to tell you they think the same because they're fearful if they don't. We don't even know why people vote the way they do. I appeal to you, verse 10, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Oh, I did baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now put this in the context of what I've been talking about, the unity that's supposed to take place in the body. The Apostle Paul is talking about his gift, his goal, his role in the body. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. I so enjoy reading this. It wasn't that Paul was dumb, and it wasn't that he wasn't used significantly significantly of God. He certainly was. But he understands. Paul says, I had a role to play. My role wasn't to go out and baptize people. Somebody else is going to do that. I've often had people come and talk to me about doing different pastoral things. and Most of the time I ask them if they have a pastor and if they don't think that a pastor should do that. They say, well, you are a pastor. No, not really. I'm the president of a ministry. I I love to teach. I know my role. And being a pastor of a church really isn't what I do. Now, I, I support the pastors, and I cheer them on. My dad was a pastor all of his life. My brother's a pastor, and I, I love pastors. I love their ministries, but I'm just not one of them. 
I have a different thing that I do in life that God's given me to do. I like supporting the pastors. I like serving them here on the grounds of Silver Birch Ranch and through the Nicolay Bible Institute. I'm a, I'm a teacher, but not a pastor. The Apostle Paul said again in the 17th verse, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach, to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom. I like that he threw that line in there because I've never been the sharpest pencil in the drawer. Well, I'm not saying that I'm not smart. I'm just saying that there are a lot of people who love the academia of life, and, and I'm just not one of them. When I read the Bible, I'm looking for simple truths to apply, not complicated truths. I'm looking for ways to make it so eight-year-olds can understand the love of God, the fact that God created them in their mother's wombs and crafted them and gave them purpose and loves them wants them to be in his family. I, I want to keep making things simple rather than difficult. And it could very well be because I'm a simple-minded person. When I was younger, I felt badly about that a little bit, but I don't anymore. I think that my simple-mindedness is something that God could use. See, I know how to read, so I could just read these words to you and I can talk to you about what they're saying. That seems pretty simple to me. I can even be very honest with you and tell you that you'd probably even gain more out of it if you just shut my words off and go read it yourself and listen to God. He's the one who wrote it. For God did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. It goes on in the 18th verse and said, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Yeah, you know, there's some that look at the cross of Christ and think, that's silly, why would anyone do that? I look at the cross of Christ and I fall on my face and say, thank you, God. Thank you for loving me, for wanting me for paying the price so I could be in your family. Is the cross foolish to you? Or is it the power of God demonstrated to you? Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? There we go again. Those that think they're very smart really need to understand they're not that smart. I've often told kids that my smartest thought is only equal to God's dumbest thought. Not that God has dumb thoughts, but that's really the scale it needs to be put on. Oh, I can learn, and I love to learn, and I, I can see things and experience things, and I love doing that. But I am so uneducated when I compare myself to God. I know nothing. And really, at my age, the more I've learned, the less I think I know. Those who walk around as if they got it all together, and they know everything, and they understand everything, I pity them. I think they quit learning a long time ago. 
There's no possible way that you can study anything and think that you know a lot towards the end of your life because the more you study, the more you see how much you don't know. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demands signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Our nation can be at the same point. You see, what Paul is talking about there is that Jesus is different to different people. The Jews refused to admit that he was the Son of God. He was a stumbling block to their Jewish religion. The Gentiles, with Jesus, is just silly. If I'm talking to a Jewish person, I can talk about God who created the heavens and the earth, and they're with me so far. I can talk about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they're with me. So I would talk to Jewish people differently than I would talk to those like Gentiles in this verse. The Gentiles, God is folly. God is silly to them. Why would you even think of it? So if I'm talking to that group, I need to start by talking about there is a God. The United States of America has gone from the point where it's been a Judeo-Christian nation where I could just start talking about who God is, but I never had to prove that there is a God. But now we're more like Gentiles, where I have to talk about there is a God first. Verse 24, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God stronger than men. That's where I get the idea that my dumbest thought is only, or my smartest thought is only smart as God's dumbest thought. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weaknesses of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God makes it clear it's not about your IQ. It's not about how many big words you know in your vocabulary. It's not about the various degrees you have. It's whether you know God. Anybody that's listening to nighttime tonight can know God. You can open the Bible and you can read it and you can get to know who he is. And knowing God puts you on a whole different plane than anyone else that doesn't know him. Those that don't know God and live in this world, God considers fools. They can never live according to the way that they were created. They can never enjoy the fact 
that God wants them and his family. They can never enjoy the concept of mercy. They can never enjoy the concept of grace. Oh, they, they can see little pictures of it, I'm sure, but they can never really understand it until they understand it in the context of God and themselves. See, I deserve eternity separated from God. God holds me accountable for my mistakes. He holds me accountable for my decisions. And I deserve to be separated from him forever, but I'm never going to be. Because I'm one of his children, because I've placed my trust in Jesus Christ. I've experienced God's mercy. And after I experience God's mercy, I bathe in his grace. I begin to think about the fact that I am a child of the king. And there's nothing that you or anybody else can do to change that. Oh, there's all kinds of things I don't understand. Whenever I've taught children, I've tried to teach them that you don't have to understand everything. You need to know God. You need to obey God. But you really don't need to understand him because he's way beyond our understanding. God chose, verse 28, what is low and despised in this world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. If I ever start boasting in myself, I'm going to be in trouble. Because really, as it's very clear in Scripture, I don't know what I should know. Only God knows that. I had very little to do with all the really important stuff in life. One day I was born to a Richard and a Joyce Wager. I didn't get to choose who I was born to. I didn't get to choose my life experiences. I didn't get to choose where I was going to be born. I didn't get to choose whether I was a male or female, and neither does anyone else today. I didn't get to choose the things in life that seemed very important. God did all that. I still don't understand totally how God could just form clay and breathe into it life, but I do know that when my life leaves this body, my body goes back to clay. And that really it's God's breath that keeps me alive. I can understand his mercy because I need mercy to gain entrance into his presence and into his family. I can understand that Jesus came to this earth and loved me enough to take my penalty and pay for my sins so that I could be in his family. Every time I see or think of an adopted child, I see the same principle in play. It's the parents who have the resources, and they go to a child who has need, and they pay for that child. They take care of that child. They give that child a home and food and education. The parents are the ones who do that. The child only has a need. So the child comes and presents themselves as needy, Sometimes they don't even do that. The parents seek them out. And when they find the needy individual, they use their resources. It's not the child who should ever brag about being in that family. For they have nothing to brag about. They were needy, 
They were helpless. They were hopeless. I think about that with my relationship with God. I really have nothing to brag about when it comes to Dave Wager. But boy, do I have a lot to say when it comes to God or Jesus. God is my Father because He chose to be. He loved me and sent His Son that while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. God doesn't need me and His family to be okay. He'll be fine without me, but He wants me, and I get to revel in that. I hope that you do too. Because God loves you and wants you and His family. And He also extends His mercy and His grace to you as He has to me. Well, I'm Dave Wager, and there's our music telling me that I need to be quiet and let you go to sleep for the night or get on to your next activity. I am thankful that you took time to listen tonight and pray that God's Word will land in a place where you can enjoy Him more and grow and develop into the person He wants you to be. I hope you do enjoy His mercy and His grace and that the peace of God that passes all understanding is something that you just enjoy on a regular basis. Good night for now.